Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is January 22nd, 2021, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is D's Bones Gonna Heal Again, with or without an end said. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Steve Joseph. Steve completed his sports medicine fellowship training at the Fowler Kennedy Sports Medicine Clinic way back in 2017. Well, that's four years ago now. He served with the Canadian Forces as a medical officer and flight surgeon. Steve is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine at Western University, working at the Fowler Clinic and the Roth McFarland Hand and Upper Limb Center. Welcome back to the SGM, Steve. Ken, thanks for having me. It's uh, always a wonderful time uh, being on the SGM with you. Well, sorry for the struggle just when we were getting started here, because we had a little trouble connecting because it had been three years since we recorded SGM number 191. And I'm like, where is he in my Skype contact file? But that was that was no time for physio. Roll with it. October 2017. So. What's new in the world of sports medicine? Well, as everyone else, uh, COVID-19 obviously has played a, a bit of a role in our practice. I have personally transitioned a little bit back to uh, rural emergency medicine. As you well know, uh, we have shared some shifts uh, at the same hospital. Uh, sports med has uh, been a never-changing landscape, of course. Uh, right now, we're trying to focus on how to keep people active and healthy uh, with you know, maybe a little bit of limitations on uh, what they can do. Obviously, there's lots of challenges out there, and uh, it's uh, more of a nice to have problem uh, to miss uh, some sporting activities but uh, like all of us it's been a bit of a struggle but we're looking forward to maybe what uh, this year and the next brings well today we're going to be talking about another challenge something that has previously divided physicians from surgeons and i'm hoping that you as a sports med doc can bring us all together so set things up with a case all right a healthy 55 year old woman was out for a walk and had a foosh or a fall on outstretched hand of her dominant arm. The x-ray demonstrates a fracture of the distal radius that is in an acceptable position and thankfully does not require a reduction. You immobilize her in a below elbow splint which provides significant pain relief and refer her to the local orthopedic fracture clinic. Of course here will be the hand and upper limb clinic. Upon discharge she asks what she should take for pain because she read somewhere that anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen can prevent bone healing. She currently takes thyroid replacement therapy and has no known drug allergies. Well, there are conflicting studies about fracture healing and the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or NSAIDs in humans. It remains a controversial topic in the orthopedic world. Yeah, when bone breaks, when sorry, when bones break, uh, they usually heal with either surgical or non-surgical management. Sometimes the healing process can take longer than usual or delayed union does not heal, non-union, or heals in poor alignment, which we call malunion. Non-union is defined as a failure of the fracture healing process and occurs in up to 1 in 10 fractures. Well, several risk factors have been associated with an increased risk of delayed or non-union. And these factors include the use of tobacco products, being older age, having severe anemia, your alcohol intake, whether or not you have diabetes, 
low vitamin D levels, hypothyroidism, like this patient does, poor nutrition, infection, an open fracture, and certain medications, and as an example, steroids. Now, the top risk factors for non-union, according to a study by Santalini et al., were an open method of fracture reduction, having an open fracture to begin with, the presence of post-surgical fracture gap, if you're a smoker, you get an infection, a wedge or comminuted fracture, a high degree of initial fracture displacement, a lack of adequate mechanical stability provided by the implant used, fracture location in a poor zone of vascularity of the affected bone, and a fracture of the tibia. So those were the the top risk factors that were identified for going on to a non-union. And you mentioned medications there. And interesting, uh, one class of medication that has been implicated in negatively impacting bone healing is NSAIDs. Non-selective NSAIDs block cyclooxygenase COX-1 and 2, while selective NSAIDs only inhibit COX-2. There have been multiple studies investigating this issue with, of course, mixed results. So what's the question we're going to try to answer on today's podcast? We are going to try to answer, is there increased risk for fracture non-union with certain classes of NSAIDs? And Steve, what's the reference? Uh, The reference is George uh, et al. It is a risk of non-union with non-selective NSAIDs, COX-2 inhibitors and opioids, Journal of Bone and Joint uh, 2020. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population they were looking at? Population was uh, 18-year-old adult inpatient or outpatients with a diagnosis of certain long bone fractures. That includes neck of the femur, tibia, fibula, tibia, and fibula radius on the humerus clavicle based on ICD-9 codes. And they did have some exclusion criteria, and I'll list those in the show notes. And I should have pronounced it PICO because it's an E, not an I in this case. What was the exposure? The exposure was filled prescription for a non-selective NSAID, selective COX-2 inhibitor, and or opioid within 30 days of the fracture. And what did they compare it to? They compared it to not filling a prescription for a non-selective NSAID, selective COX-2 inhibitor, and or opioid with 30 days of the fracture. All right, let's run through the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? Primary outcome in the study was diagnosis of non-union within the 91 to 365 days post-fracture. This was based on two definitions. The primary definition used as ICD-9 code for non-union with the procedure to treat non-union within 30 days of the non-union diagnosis. The secondary definition was an inpatient or outpatient diagnosis of non-union. So the author's conclusions were, quote, COX-2 inhibitors but not non-selective NSAIDs, were associated with a greater risk of non-union after fracture. Opioids were also associated with non-union risk, although patients filling prescriptions for opioids may have had more severe fractures. End of quote. All right, Steve, let's go through the quality checklist for observational studies. The first question is, did the study address a clearly focused issue? Uh, Yes, it did, Ken. Uh, Association between various analgesics in patients with long bone fractures and non-union. Did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? Yes, they did. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? I'm unsure about this one. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? That is a no. How about the outcome? Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? 
Also unsure, it was validated using ICD-9 codes. Uh, the diagnosis for non-union was based on two definitions. The secondary definition had a positive predictive value of 89%. The sixth question, the authors, did they identify all important confounding factors? Again, unsure. Was the follow-up of subjects complete? Yes, it was. How precise were the results? Fairly precise. And do you believe them? I do believe the results, yes. And can the results be applied to your local population? Yes, they can. And do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yes, they do. Let's run through the key results. The final cohort consisted of almost 340,000 patients, and they identified those patients over a 15-year time span. Less than 1% were diagnosed with non-union. It was 3,000 patients, roughly, out of the 340,000 patients. The mean age was in the 50s, and around 60% were female. The top three fractures were the radius, the neck of the femur, so a hip fracture, and the humerus. What was the key result, Steve? Key result was that patients who filled prescriptions for selective COX-2 inhibitors and opioids, but not NSAIDs, from a non-selective perspective, were associated with an increased risk of non-union. All right, let's drill down into that primary outcome of non-union. When you looked at the COX-2 inhibitors of prescriptions, the adjusted odds ratio was 1.84, and it was statistically significant. Uh, For opioid prescriptions, the adjusted odd ratio was uh, 1.69, I believe also statistically significant. And then for the non-selective NSAID prescriptions, the odds ratio was 1.07, and the 95% confidence interval spanned one, so there was no statistical difference for non-selective NSAID prescriptions and non-unions, while there was for opioid prescriptions and COX-2 inhibitors. All right, let's talk nerdy, Steve, my favorite part of the program. You bet. I can't wait. (laughs) I've got the first question, and that is... They answered the question they asked about associations between filling a prescription for various analgesics and the risk of non-union. However, the question we really want answered is whether or not any of these medications has a causal relationship with non-union. Stronger evidence would have been an RCT, a randomized control trial, of these medications with the outcome of non-union confirmed clinically and not just using ICD-9 codes. It would be difficult to get ethics approval for a placebo-controlled trial, and it could also be a challenge to maintain blinding in that type of RCT because of the known side effect profile of opioids. Yeah, let's talk also cohort recruitment. We were unsure if the cohort was recruited in an acceptable way to minimize bias. They used ICD-9 codes to identify the individuals with a fracture. There was no reference to support that this is a validated method. Yeah, so we don't know if searching ICD-9 codes is actually a valid method for recruiting the enrolled cohort. All right, the third nerdy point was about exposure, and the exposure was for only if the patient filled a prescription, not if they took the prescription. Some prescriptions may have been filled. Some prescriptions may have been filled and missed in their search. They did not describe the process well enough for me to figure that out. And again, filling a prescription does not confirm if they actually took the medication or how much they took 
or for how long? And you know, Steve, non-selective NSAIDs are widely available over-the-counter medications, which could also confound the results. But we'll talk more about confounders in nerdy point number five. So before number five is the nerdy point number four, which is outcome. Their outcome was based on two non-union definitions. Both relied on ICD-9 codes. They did not provide a reference validating the first definition. The second definition did have a reference. It was a small, single-center study with a positive predictive value of only 89%. The authors of the cited study for the definition acknowledged these weaknesses in their discussion of limitations. This included the issue of PPV being based on prevalence of disease. You see, that's how nerdy I am, Steve. I went back when I was reading this paper, this study, and I said, okay, there's the reference. It says a positive predictive value of 89%. Oh, let's pull that article. And then I pulled that article and found that it was just this single, small study. So I'm not sure how valid the method is of using ICD-9 codes for outcomes. But the fifth and final nerdy point that I wanted to talk about was they identified many confounders in their analysis like diabetes, alcohol consumption, steroid use, and others. However, there are other confounders like severe anemia, low vitamin D levels, hypothyroidism, which the case you presented, the woman had hypothyroidism, and poor nutrition, among other things, which have an association with non-union and they weren't controlled for. They weren't measured. And so if you didn't uh, capture that data, you can't adjust your odds ratio for it. And this could have impacted not only the magnitude of the point estimate, but it could have also impacted the 95% confidence interval around that point estimate. In other words, the precision of the results. But that's enough nerdy stuff. It's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. And we generally agree with the author's conclusions, but would have added a qualification that other unmeasured confounders could have impacted the results. How about an SGEM bottom line? The bottom line here is there is not high quality evidence to support the claim that non-selective NSAIDs cause an increased risk of non-union. And can you resolve the case you presented? Yeah, uh, we will suggest using acetaminophen or ibuprofen for pain. And how are you going to take this observational study and apply it clinically? This will not change my practice. I will prescribe according to the patient's preferences, my clinical judgment, and the available evidence. This will mean usually suggesting non-selective NSAIDs or acetaminophen. Sometimes I'll prescribe a short course of opioids. I do not use COX-2 inhibitors because there is no high quality evidence of either better efficacy or a better safety profile. And this study suggests an increased associated risk of non-union. So what are you going to tell this 50-year-old woman who fell and broke her wrist when she fooshed? I will tell her... Better luck next time. No, I won't tell her that. I will tell her that broken bones can be very painful. Immobilization often provides a great deal of pain relief. You can also use acetaminophen or ibuprofen to help with the pain. The goal is not to get to zero pain, but to minimize suffering. There is no high quality evidence that anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen will prevent bone healing. If the pain is getting worse, you are getting numbness, losing function, the hand is going cold or pale, or you're otherwise worried, please come back to the emergency department for reassessment. And it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. 
Last week's winner was Garrison Lin. Now, Garrison is a nursing student at Western University in London, Ontario, and is currently doing a placement at the South Huron Hospital Association. That's where I work, the little hospital that does. Now, Garrison knew that the first nurse practitioner program in the United States was started back in 1965 by Loretta Ford and Dr. Henry K. Silver from the University of Colorado. I will be giving Garrison a cool, skeptical prize on our next shift together. What's the Keener Contest question this week, Steve? The question is, what were cyclooxygenase or COX inhibitors previously called? That's a great question. You know why, Steve? Why is that? Because I did my master's in fetal physiology and reproductive endocrinology when this cyclooxygenase inhibitors were identified, but they were called something else. So my master's thesis has the other name for this molecule. So that's a little bit more trivia than you probably wanted to know. So I'm, we're looking for the name that cyclooxygenase inhibitors were previously called. And if you're the first person to send me an email at the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line, you will receive a cool skeptical prize. Steve, we've got to do this more often than once every three years. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm into socially connected, physically distancing, but I want to stay socially connected with you. Yeah, I'm with you. It's, uh, it's uh, been more fun than I remember, but uh, that's often what happens uh, when there's a fair amount of time between uh, connecting, at least from a distance. Uh, I really appreciate having me back on the SGM today. Well, your world of sports medicine crosses over so much with emergency medicine because we see so many, not just athletes, but just individuals that have injured themselves that end up in a sports medicine clinic, trying to get some rehabilitation. You guys do a great job. And so I think there's a lot of overlap there and you've got some expertise that you could bring to the SGEM. So if you see a paper and you go, hey, I bet Ken would want to put his skeptical eye upon that. You know where I am. You can email me. I will do so. It's, uh, it's a great reminder to uh, always be on the lookout for interesting crossover papers or other thoughts. Now, just to remind everybody, the SGEM episodes are now available for you to earn CME credits. It's as simple as one, two, three. You just listen to the episode, click on the link, and then claim your CME credits. There will be a link in the show notes, but this is another service that we're offering. People have approached me over the last few years saying, hey, can I get credit? Yes, you can now earn CME credits for listening to the SGEM. Thanks again, Steve. Can you read the SGEM tagline? I'd be honored to. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Talk to everyone next time.